June of 2020, our class had its first session. Reading classic novels soon became our one obsession. With COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go. So we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show. We're reading books. We're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying stop it please. We're reading books. We're killing cedars. And Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Charlotte is our teacher and she's very optimistic that she can teach us something, even something quite simplistic. She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy. But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her arsey. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please, we're reading books. We're killing cedars at Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Daniel plays with puppets, which is just a little weird. He also is Canadian and has a luscious beard. Jerry has just graduated university, so she's the baby of this podcast, don't you see? Andrew is the oldest and has trouble concentrating. He thinks he's pretty funny, but his sense of humor is grating. Emmy is a doctor, so she knows things quite obscure, but her degree's in agriculture, so she mostly knows me more. We're reading books until we're sore. My eyes! We're answering Miss Charlotte and competing for a score. Ask us why we're doing this, we really couldn't say. But listen and just maybe you'll enjoy it anyway. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it please. Oh, we're God. reading books, we're killing cedars. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Hello, and welcome to Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, a podcast for lovers and the books who love them. For books and the lovers who love... Books? That is, books. We'd like books. Join us today as we continue reading Wuthering Heights. This is episode four. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is an audio production of the Yokohama Theatre Group, or YTG, a non-profit theatre company based in Japan. If you want to support the theatrical work that we do, you can head over to ytg.jp and click the support button. On this show, we have four readers, including myself. Each episode, we sit down, talk about the week's assigned chapters, make presentations, and answer questions to compete for points. Our guide, the giver and taker of points, is the titular Miss Charlotte. Good morning, Miss Charlotte. Good morning, class. The reader with the most points at the end of the show will be dubbed Teacher's Pet. And the reader with the lowest score, frequently in the negative numbers, uh, will wear the dunce cap. It is only an imaginary dunce cap, but it is purple, and the loser has to wear it nonstop until the following episode. When we finish Wuthering Heights, all these points will be totaled, and the winner will get something. We haven't decided yet. If you have suggestions, feel free to email us at reader at ytg.jp. I will now introduce our cast in order of proximity to where I am currently sitting in Yokohama. Sitting right here in Yokohama at the center of the universe is me, Andrew Wilner, Artistic Director of the Yokohama Theatre Group and Director slash Editor of this show. Up the proverbial shit creek from me over the river in Machida, Tokyo, is Judy Ito, 
my assistant artistic director and fellow theater creator at YTG. Judy, uh, have you got that? You haven't, we've established you have not got that new interface yet. I'm going to have to keep editing all the echoes out of your side of the recording, right? Yeah, I just want to make life harder for you. I see. Okay. Well, heading northeast as the crow flies from Judy is Dr. Emmy Doe sitting up in Shinjuku, Tokyo. Now, you'd think from her metropolitan location that Emmy is a city slicker, but she is frequently to be found on a mountaintop or running for 21 hours straight. So how was that sweet, sweet 21 hours straight air, Emmy? Uh... Emmy almost missed today's recording because she <laughs> fell asleep when she got home because she'd been running for almost 24 hours. Who'd have thought it? How many kilometers was that? 115. That's insane. That is insane. Because it's there, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> As one heads north from Tokyo, one finds oneself in the great suburban wasteland of Saitama, the very last place you'd expect a talented puppeteer and podcaster to be practicing his craft. But sitting right there in that cesspool of meh is Daniel Wishes, shining, comparatively, like a piece of fool's gold in a tanuki turd. Daniel... I think your podcast, uh, Weird Movie Club, just dropped a new episode as of this recording, because my, my thing binged earlier, uh, a couple days ago. Mm. Uh, what's the most recent movie you guys watched as of this recording? Oh, yeah. The last movie we saw was Brazil. We release a new episode every two weeks. Okay, so that was the one I was listening to then. Uh, I'm enjoying that. More than I enjoyed Brazil. I'm, I'm, with, I'm with Sari on that one, so if anyone wants to know what that means, they're going to have to listen to the episode. Okay, uh, sitting... <laughs> approximately 10,014.67 kilometers to the east of Daniel in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, is our teacher, Victorian literature expert, and master Miss Charlotte Sampson. I call you master because you have a master's degree, right? Like, it's not gendered, right? Am I wrong about that? Oh, no. Like, There's no such thing as a mistress degree. I mean, if yeah. there were, that would be pretty sexy. But, uh... It's like I don't call Emmy Doctress Emmy Doe, right? So I don't I shouldn't I should call you Master Miss Charlotte, I think. That's my that's my theory. I'm sticking with it. Um, as has been our custom, there are four readers today, including myself. Uh, we will be talking about the book and answering questions to compete for points. I've already said that. Blah 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 blah. Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome everybody. Are we ready to start the class? Yay! Woo! Let's get into it. So we were going to start a little bit differently this time. Um, usually I give a sort of chapter and plot summary, uh, but we are going to assign that to someone else for today. I think, Daniel, did you have something prepared for that? Or... Yes. Okay, great. So, so why don't you tell us what happens in chapters 10 through 12 of Wuthering Heights? So before I start, there are two Canadians in this group. Am I correct? Three Canadians. Uh, four Canadians, Daniel. Everyone except Judy is a Canadian. I wasn't. I forgot to count myself as a Canadian. <laughs> well, as, as many of you Canadians may remember, the Canadian version of Astro Boy in the 80s had an additional section at the end where Astro Boy would tell a computer all of his adventures, but he would purposely make one mistake so that the fans at home could play along and write down the mistake and compare with their friends to see what it is. So like Astro Boy uh, reporting to Japan, Gibraltar, I think that was, or Geronimo, Geronimo, that was the name of the computer. Yeah, I have, I have put one mistake in this, um, in my recap, so, but please don't interrupt me until I'm finished if you, if you see the mistake. Chapter 10. Lockwood has been sick for the past four weeks and is in desperate need of entertainment. Since Netflix hasn't been invented yet, he orders Nellie Dean to continue acting out all the adventures of Heathcliff and friends. 
She agrees and continues telling the story, doing all the characters' voices and everything. She's great. In the story, Heathcliff surprises everyone by showing up at Thrushcross Grange. But this is a new and improved Heathcliff. He's stronger, richer, more gentlemanly. Kathy is overjoyed and excited to see the love of her life return, which makes things a bit awkward and uncomfortable for her husband, Edgar. Heathcliff reveals that he has worked out an arrangement with Hinley to live at Wuthering Heights so he can visit Kathy at the Grange all the time. Edgar is like, yay! Isabella develops a huge crush on Heathcliff, so Kathy humiliates her in front of him. Heathcliff realizes that marrying Isabella could help him acquire Edgar's property. <laughs> Chapter 11. Nellie has a vision of Hinley as a little boy and gets worried about him. So she goes to Wuthering Heights to see if he's alive, and she runs into little Harridan. Harridan doesn't remember her and throws rocks at her face, despite her efforts to win him over with oranges. Harridan reveals that he is not getting an education from the curate, but is instead being taught by Heathcliff to swear at Hinley. Nellie runs away when she sees Joseph coming out of the house. Back at the Grange, Nellie sees Heathcliff putting the moves on Isabella. This leads to Heathcliff and Kathy having a fight. Edgar shows up and threatens to have his posse remove Heathcliff from the premises. Before this can happen, Kathy locks the door to the house and throws the key into the fire. She encourages the two men to fight. Edgar has a panic attack, but then sucker punches Heathcliff in the throat before running away like a little girl to get help from his servants. Later, Edgar tells Kathy to choose between him and Heathcliff. Kathy makes a big show out of locking herself in her room and refusing to eat. Chapter 12. After three days, Kathy finally agrees to eat because she's hungry, or as she puts it, I'm dying. Kathy has several fits, wild mood swings, and rants about various things to Nellie. At one point, she rips open a cushion and sorts all the feathers inside. Fun. She opens the window and thinks she can see Wuthering Heights. She can't. Edgar finally decides to show up after ignoring Kathy for three days and is concerned by his wife's mental and physical condition. Nellie goes to get the doctor for Kathy and discovers that Heathcliff has eloped with Isabella. Edgar is less than pleased with the news. Very good. So, who can tell me what the mistake was? I think I know. I think. I think it was, um, it wasn't Joseph who scared Nellie Dean off. I think it was Heathcliff himself who scared her off. At Wuthering Heights. That is correct. That was my purposeful yeah. mistake. Very good. It's a low stakes question. I'll give you three points for that. Ooh, thank you. Okay, it's time for Vocab Corner. Da -da 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 -da. Maybe we could have an intro for this. Da -da 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 -da. Vocab Corner. It's a corner of vocab. All right. Uh, so, physiognomy. Physiognomy is the assessing of someone's character or personality from their outside appearance. But what uh, the sentence it's in is, oh, this dearth of the human physiognomy. It's just like a $20 way of saying, I haven't seen very many people. That's, that's all that Lockwood's saying there. Oh. Um, um, a Sizar, I think that's how you pronounce that. It comes up uh, that Heathcliff may have been a Sizar at a university. It's, um, it's just that's an undergrad who or gets his tuition paid by being a servant to the other students. Um, it depends. It depends when you're talking, what time period. But in this time period, you might have served the other students for like a year, and then you get to like go to the school yourself. Um, Furs and windstone. This is Kathy says she's listing all of Heathcliff's bad qualities, and she says among other things, he's like furs and windstone. Furs is gore is is another word for gorse, which is a thorny plant. 
and win, uh, windstone is any hard, dark-colored rock that's like generally not good for building with. Very angular, like basalt, basalt. I don't know how you pronounce that volcanic rock word. Um, yeah, so that's just not nice things to say about Heathcliff. An elf bolt is a old-timey word for a Stone Age triangular uh, arrowhead that people would find in their fields sometimes. They thought, I guess they thought the elves made them or pretended the elves made them or whatever. So that's what an elf bolt is. That's why in the dream, in Kathy's like madness, she thinks Nellie Dean is looking for elf bolts to like attack her with. Um, elf locked, on the other hand, is basically this curly, messed, tangled hair. So sorry. Uh, yeah. Sorry. For People listeners on the can't podcast see that. can't. Yeah. People on the podcast can't see that I have el I am elf locked. Elf Locked? Perhaps it should have the long ED ending. I am Elf Locked! Um, so when they say that a Harriton is Elf Locked, it means his hair has been allowed to grow wild and curly and messy and tangled. Uh, Leveret is a, is a hair, like rabbit-like creature, which is less than one year old. Peremptorily just means in a commanding way, sort of stopping anyone from questioning her. If I, if I tell Daniel to shut up peremptorily, it's like, shut up! And then he can't even, he can't even form a thought after that because I've been so commanding. Paroxysm is a, vi is a violent outburst, but it can also be used to refer to like a recurrence or like uh, intensification of an illness or a sickness. Ignominous just means without honor. So it, it, I beat an ignominous retreat means I retreated without honor in shame. Uh, infernally, as in you have treated me infernally, means hellishly. Infernal is referring to, yeah, the infernal place. A milk-blooded coward. Just, it's a, it's just... It, Fanciful imagery, someone whose blood is milk rather than blood, and that, therefore they are a coward. Their blood is white. A brace of grouse. Actually, brace is used twice in these chapters. Once for grouse, once for pistols, which is the more common way I, I'm used to hearing it, because I, I read a lot of historical fiction that has highwaymen in it. Um, brace just means a pair of two things that are alike. So a brace of grouse is two game birds. Mawkish is, means overly sentimental. Oh, is that it? Is that it? I think that's it. Thank you very much, Andrew. Though I am going to dock one point because you mispronounced okay. ignominious. Ignominious. It's not ignominious. There's an I in there. Ignominious. That's what happens. That's what happens when you learn words from only reading them. <laughs> as as a very embarrassing time in high school when I mispronounced posthumously. It, sorry, to my, in my defense, it looks like posthumously. Humus yeah. meaning dirt. It does. It does look After like turning to dirt. Yeah. Anyway. It is now time for the reader response. And this week it's Daniel. And what was the what was the format that Daniel's reader response had to be in? Oh boy, here we go. Well, I was my my assignment was to rewrite a scene in a different genre. But I wasn't given which scene I should do or what genre I should do. So I had a lot of choice. Uh, and I think I made a bad one. Uh, I chose to rewrite a scene from Wuthering Heights in the genre of a terrible 90s sitcom. We're Wuthering wrongs and we're Wuthering rights. Through those Wuthering days and Wuthering nights. We're Wuthering friendship and Wuthering fights. Take Wuthering bits and Wuthering bites. If you feel... Wuthering lows rise up to Wuthering, Wuthering heights. 
Wuthering Heights is filmed before a live studio audience. In Thrush Cross Grange, young Isabella has a conversation with the missus. I'm Nellie Dean, by the way. Excuse me. May I speak to you, Kathy? Ugh, you already are, Isabella. It's just that you were a bit harsh with me yesterday. How can you say that I'm harsh, you naughty fondling? When have I ever been harsh? You're being harsh right now. You're a dog in a manger, Kathy. Well, you're an impertinent little monkey. I love Heathcliff more than you ever loved, Edgar. Heathcliff? would crush you like a sparrow's egg. <laughs> All is against me. Aww. Miss Linton is right, miss. I saw Joseph yesterday and he said to me, Nellie, he says, we's our Cronus Quest in now at our folks. One of them's that almost getting his finger cut off with a holding to other for sticking himself like a cow. Well, that's easy for him to say. I tell you, miss, that Heathcliff is an unreclaimed creature without refinement, without cultivation and arid wallness of furs and windstone. <clears throat> He's standing right behind me, isn't he? Could it be any more wuthering in here? Hey, Claire. Heathcliff, you're just in time to settle an argument between us. Isabella here says that she's in love with you. Kathy! Mmm, a check, please. Well, don't mind her. I was just punishing her sauciness. I like her too much to let you devour her up. I like her too ill to attempt it, except in a very ghoulish fashion. You'd hear of odd things if I lived alone with that mawkish waxen face. The most ordinary would be painting on its white the colors of the rainbow and turning the blue eyes black every day or two. They detestably resemble Linton's. Well, that came out wrong. That's our Heathcliff. I think I think that shouldn't I think that sitcom should have been called That's Our Heathcliff. I think that should have been the title. <laughs> mm. All right. Feedback time. <clears throat> that that hit a lot of the it hit a lot of the points and even it, uh, it, it did. And in fact, I I'm glad that uh I'm glad that was the passage you chose because that is in fact one of the segments that I want to do a real deep dive when we get to discussion. So it's really good. You sort of primed us all for that. Um, A plus. Yeah. Was, wow. Did you the edit amount that of effort too? that went into it, in addition to, I mean, you're kind of, you kind of identified, like, this section has a lot of snappy comebacks. And it, it's one of the more lively parts of the novel, I think. I, yeah. A plus, great instincts on choosing that passage, and I love what you did with it. Thank you, Miss Charlotte. It also injected I some levity into what is otherwise incredibly dismal and disturbing. Um, 
I mean, you can say that of most of Wuthering Heights, but <laughs> there's some there's some pretty dark shit in here. I mean, Heathcliff more or less says, if I marry that thing, I'm going to beat her up all the time. Like, Heathcliff? That's our Heathcliff. That's our Heathcliff. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that is our Heathcliff. So, should we just jump into discussion of that? Uh, I mean, I have some other things I want to discuss as well, but let's break down that whole little, I don't know whether to call it a fight, or it seems like they're it's almost as though Kathy and Heathcliff are both fighting with each other, but also allied with each other. Anyway, I'll stop talking because I want to hear what the class thinks about that. Is it possible for you to hate every single character in a story? Because it's horrible. I don't like any of them. Yeah, I can't find myself siding with anybody. Any, any dissenting opinions, Andrew, Judy? Do you, do you have do you have favorites? I do not have a favorite. Nelly Nelly was also kind of not so great in yeah. chapter twelve. She's she caught she essentially caused what happened. She caused the final explosion. I know. On the other hand, though, I think Nelly Dean's been eating shit for a long time. Yeah, and uh, and she's just kind of tired of like I think she's just tired of eating Catherine's shit. Catherine treats everybody like crap, but yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that like. Like, as a servant, she kind of goes getting it, like, in all directions. Well, and it's especially yeah. hard because Nellie's, like, she grew up with them. So it's, like, it's a she's a peer, sort of. Um, she's been treated differently this entire time, but it's hard not to see the humanness in, like, the people that she's serving, you know? So she's, like, yeah, these these people don't seem like a different class. Like, you know, she's seen them at their worst. She's, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's also she's our point of view character, so it's kind of natural. It's kind of natural to sympathize with her to a certain extent. Fair. And I'm like, I don't know if she behaved ideally, but like, I think she, unlike the rest of them, she behaved understandably. Yes. Mm. She's very uh, manipulative, though. She's like the puppeteer trying to control everything behind the scenes. None of us have responded to what you said, but whether or not we think that Heathcliff, if Heathcliff and Kathy are against each other or with each other. Yeah, I want to dive deep into the kind of dynamic that they have, both in this section and there's kind of a major blowout. But yeah, so the part that we're going to start with, it's, it's after that paragraph, the next time Heathcliff came, my young lady, blah, blah, blah. And then we just have like, Pretty much everyone gets into it at this point, because Edgar shows up, and Nellie Dean gets into it as well, and we have Catherine and Heathcliff trading barbs, as well as Heathcliff just dishing it out on Edgar. It's And, and then, of course, Catherine joins in. It, it, it's kind of a free-for-all, and I want to, to, to try if we can tease out some of the relationship dynamics that this particular set of conversations, so both Kathy and Heathcliff's mutual humiliation of Isabella and their mutual humiliation of Edgar, how does this work in concert to give us a picture of Thrush Crossgrange at this particular point in the narrative? That, that question feels like overly broad. Yeah, I don't, okay, I don't okay. really understand let's, the let's, question. I don't understand where to start with that. Okay, 
My bad, my bad. Let's let's break it down. Since we had that wonderful reader response of that, I'm not sure whether to call it a conversation or a berating um, of Catherine laying into Isabella in chapter 10. Let's tease out that relationship dynamic. So how... How do you feel about Catherine and Isabella and the sort of relationship dynamic that they have fallen into? They were fine until Catherine realized that Isabella was falling in love with Heathcliff. No, I mean, it sounds like Catherine was kind of trying to be really nice to avoid tension in the house. No, I mean, I think that Kath Catherine, as long as she got her way, she was fine. And in this case, it's like, Isabella being into Heathcliff is not her way. And th there was hints, there were hints earlier, she would freak out a little bit if, she, if the, either bro the brother or sister sort of did something that she didn't like, and they just would mollify her. They were just weren't, they didn't want to fight. And so she always got her way, and so she stayed, she was able to stay reasonably civil. Um, and this is the one thing that Isabella is going to push back on. It becomes this point of conflict that can't be resolved, because neither of them are going to give up. That is... A pretty good assessment. Um, when Catherine goes to Thrushcross Grange, the force of her will, basically, the, the strength of her character, more or less begins to run the house. Like we see both Isabella and Edgar being incredibly passive in their own way, and in the way that they they deal with Catherine. They deal with Catherine not by reasoning with her, but by acquiescing. There's there's a neat phrase that I'm actually going to save it for the pop quiz to 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 discuss sort of the 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 situation there as Nellie Dean um, characterizes it. But we'll get to that in the pop quiz. In fact, why don't we why don't we just take this in order? Because I want to take a look at a few of the character interactions that we have. I feel that these these chapters really illustrate to what degree um, to what degree things have gone to the dogs, haha, um, both at Wuthering Heights and at Thrushcross Grange. But let's get back to Wuthering Heights and we'll see the, the estate and we'll see what's happening over there in chapter 11 when Nellie Dean meets Harriton Earnshaw again. What do you think of their whole interaction? What, were there any noteworthy things that you pulled from that, from that little brief section? I was willing to kind of give Heathcliff the kind of a benefit of the doubt, sort of. Like, oh, he's being misinterpreted. He's kind of like, you know, this bad character, but he means well. He has a heart of gold. And I'm like, are you freaking serious? <laughs> You're like... Turning the kid into a monster just because you don't want, like, like the dad? That's so lame. I mean, it says in that section, essentially, that his father beats him and then Heathcliff beats his father. And so that's one of the reasons he's, he's attached to him. But he also sends away, like, he sends away the curate. He won't, he's essentially treating Harriton like he was treated, yeah, to some extent. Let's, let's not forget that he tried to murder Harriton as a baby as well. That was a thing. Which which Hinley tried to murder? Yeah, Hinley. Yeah, Hinley is never going to win Father of the Year, even if no. Heathcliff is also 
taking over father responsibilities and stopping Harrodin from getting any kind of education. Now, this might be a bit of a weird angle, but do you suppose there's anything good in even inadvertently that Heathcliff might be doing for young Harriton? Yes, he's teaching him how to swear. <laughs> it's an important skill. I'll give you two points for that. I mean, it's not it's it, it would not have been seen as a good thing by the readership, but I think that it at least demonstrates that he's instilling some spunk in the young lad. Um, he's, he's protecting him from his father. He's physically protecting him from his father. Yes. And I think that we might be able to call back to, well, the first significant encounter with between Heathcliff and Harriton, where Hindley again nearly kills Harriton, dropping him off the balcony, and Heathcliff catches him. So here we, again, we have instances where Heathcliff, even though he doesn't like Harriton, despises Hindley even more, and in so doing, kind of makes himself into something of Harriton's savior. And I want you to remember that dynamic, because that is going to, I think, characterize some of the terms of the relationship between those two. And we can, in many ways, read... Spoilers. We can read Harriton's character arc over the course of the novel as coming to terms with how misguided it is that he respects Heathcliff at all, and that he will slowly learn enough about Heathcliff's character to recognize his proper place. Why don't we start with the section in chapter 11 where Edgar shows up on the scene? So we've had Catherine and Heathcliff kind of starting to get into it. And yeah, and so Nellie Dean goes to fetch Edgar. And Edgar bursts in with, How is this? said Linton, addressing her. What notion of propriety must you have to remain here after the language which has been held to you by that blackguard? I suppose because it is an or that I suppose because it is his ordinary talk, you think nothing of it. You are habituated to his baseness. And perhaps imagine I can get used to it too. From there on. We're just going to get a whole torrent of abuse thrown at Edgar. What does this reveal about the dynamic both between Catherine and Edgar, but also Heathcliff and Edgar at this point? How does either character treat Edgar in this, in this passage? So, I mean, I think it's just clear they just don't think of him as a... They don't think of him as a player on the same level that they are. Yeah, he's this. a joke to them. Yeah. He's kind of, he's, he's, he's superfluous. He's weak. He's a baby rabbit. Yeah, let's get into some of these sick burns that they both get in against Edgar in this section. Um, I mean, what's your favorite? What's your favorite epithet for Edgar? I mean, we've got a few of them. Heathcliff measured the height and breadth of the speaker with an eye full of derision. Kathy, this lamb of yours threatens like a bull. It is in danger of splitting its skull against my knuckles. By God, Mr. Linton, I'm mortally sorry that you are not worth knocking down. My favorite one is after Edgar's, you know, he's 
he's done his attack on on Heathcliff and he just he starts trembling and he he, he sort of collapses over the chair and uh, Kathy sort of makes makes fun of him sarcastically but then she says Heathcliff would as soon lift a finger at you as the king would march his army against a colony of mice as far as sick burns go I like that one and then of course Heathcliff jumps right back in still arguing with Catherine yeah. but using Edgar as a way of attacking Catherine. I wish you joy of the milk-blooded coward, Cathy. I compliment you on your taste. And that is the slavering, shivering thing you preferred to me? I would not strike him with my fist, but I'd kick him with my foot and experience considerable satisfaction. Is he weeping? Or is he going to faint for fear? You almost kind of feel bad for Edgar. Like, they're, they're both laying into him. Right, but then right after this, he punches Heathcliff right in the throat, so mm. <laughs> he gets his little ninja punch in. There's, there's this whole dynamic of Kathy, like, almost showing off a bit for Heathcliff, like, seeing, like, see? See, I hate this guy. I hate him. And, and Heathcliff's like, yeah, he, you're right. He's terrible, but also you married him? So how does that make you look? I think, if anything, this section goes to show the degree to which really the only person that Catherine holds in any esteem is Heathcliff. Everyone else is just sort of a prop in her personal drama with him. And I feel that's why everyone at Thrushcross Grange is so paranoid about disturbing the peace, as far as Catherine goes, that she is just this at, at least at this point, this implacable spirit who runs roughshod over the house. And as soon as Heathcliff comes on the scene and things start to turn against her in any way, she kind of shows her true colors here. And she shows the degree to which she really doesn't care much about anyone except Heathcliff. That even the even the people that she uses to hurt Heathcliff do not matter one single bit to her. Yeah, which is, I mean, it, it gets really weird, like, in the next, this chapter, the next chapter is like, what, like, what does she want? I don't even know what she wants. I mean, that's a very good question. What the hell does Catherine get out of all of this? Like, what's her what's her end game here? I don't get it. Because even her even her scenario of like, oh, I'll be married to Edgar and I'll be like friends with Heathcliff, who I who I actually like like, but she doesn't actually like him. Or if she does like him, she likes him in a very toxic, like jealous way. But it doesn't even like. I I don't get it. I just at this point maybe something's going to be revealed later. I don't get it. I don't get. I don't get Catherine at all. I really don't think she has any kind of plan. She just, all of her actions are based off of raw emotion. Yeah, but even then, what's the emotion? Like, what's the, what's the underlying emotion between her and Heathcliff? Why is it, why is he important? I don't, I don't get the why. She is Heathcliff. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, I get, I get his thing with her. I actually under, I kind of understand the way he sees her. I, I really don't understand the way she sees him. Does anyone have any ideas? I mean, I think it's definitely supposed to be a mystery. Certainly, it's a mystery to Nellie Dean, who doesn't really seem to understand the nature of their connection. So, because Nellie Dean is telling the story, and because Catherine and Heathcliff spend so much time together, we don't really get much of a sense of how their relationship goes when it goes well, if it goes well at all. We don't really hear a whole lot of their intercourse, no, no innuendo intended there. We don't get a lot of the private dialogues of Catherine and Heathcliff, because of course, unless Nellie Dean is there to overhear it, we don't get it. Yeah, but they're also like they're not getting they've never ever been caught like making out with each other or or, or uh what was what was the word embracing each other? Like they've never been caught doing anything. So like there's no there doesn't seem to be a physical aspect to the relationship. It, it could just be she's a she's kind of like a sociopath and she gets the rise out of torturing him. And so when anyone else comes in like when anyone else it has the possibility of like taking that toy away from her, that's what makes her upset. Like he's kind of I mean, that's, that's one way of, I mean, that's actually, I think that's where I am now. I think she's a sociopath and he's her toy and that's, that's, that's what's important. She's not going to let someone take that away. He's the only one she actually enjoys like toying with because he's the only one who's resilient enough to like stand up to her, I think. Well, let's talk about what happens when Heathcliff does stand up to Catherine. So this is, uh, this is actually just before they all start throwing shade at Edgar they're arguing over Isabella and her clear crush on Heathcliff for God knows what reason. So we're going to start with, Hush, said Catherine, shutting the inner door. Don't vex me. Why have you disregarded my request? Did she come across you on purpose? What is it to you? He growled. I have a right to kiss her if she chooses, and you have no right to object. I'm not your husband. You needn't be jealous of me. And so they trade some barbs back and forth, blah, blah, blah. You shan't scowl at me. If you like Isabella, you should marry her, etc. And then Nellie Dean jumps in with, and would Mr. Linton approve of his sister marrying that man? Mr. Linton should approve, returned my lady decisively. And then we got this from Heathcliff. And I'd actually like someone to read this, if, if you're following along. It's kind of a shortish paragraph of dialogue from Heathcliff. He might spare himself the trouble. Can I get a volunteer from the class? If nobody else volunteers, I can do it. Uh, right. Mr. Linton should approve, returned my lady decisively. He might spare himself the trouble, said Heathcliff. I could do as well without his approbation. And as to you, Catherine, I have a mind to speak a few words now while we are, we are, while we are at it. I want you to be aware that I know you have treated me infernally. Infernally, do you hear? And if you flatter yourself that I don't perceive it, you are a fool. And if you think I can be consoled by sweet words, you are an idiot. And if you fancy I'll suffer unrevenged, I'll convince you of the contrary in a very little while. Meantime, thank you for telling me your sister-in-law's secret. I swear I'll make the most of it and stand you aside. Heathcliff accuses Catherine of treating him infernally. Are we on Heathcliff's side? here? Like, does he have a point? Or is this sour grapes? What do we make of this accusation of Heathcliff's? F first of all, 
Based on what we've seen up to this point in the novel, how has Catherine treated Heathcliff? As kids, they seem like they got along. Like, you know, like he, they, they would go off and scamper in the woods and get bitten by dogs and, you know, do their kitty thing. And like, he was there, like she crawled into his window. Right. That was in the song, yeah. <laughs> I don't think she treated him I mean, infernally, not at least not directly. She he was she was obviously his only friend or acquaintance where he could just be himself and she could be herself. And she he just felt betrayed, especially when she started co shifting and then ended up saying he degraded her. Very good. Uh, five points for that observation, Jury. So, what we can sort of tease out from this interaction is that... Now, I, I, I'm not saying that we need to excuse Heathcliff for anything that he does or will do, but he does have a bit of a point in that the shift in their relationship really occurred when Catherine threw him aside. And her reasons for doing so were, well, what do you think were her reasons? I mean, Jury, you kind of alluded to it, but just so we're all on the same page. Why did she give Heathcliff the boot, metaphorically? Financial reasons. In part, but I, I think it's something more fundamental than that. I mean, what's the big objection to Heathcliff? It's class. It's about class. She yeah. basically, it was just sort of like, it's, it wasn't even, and I think to her, in her mind, she wasn't even betraying him because it was just like, that was never a thing that couldn't happen. But I think she had him convinced that it could because they were the only people who liked each other. And I think he feels like, I mean, he says it somewhere in here, like, it's not just, it's not Hinley he came, it's not just Hinley he came back for revenge on. I don't remember exactly where, but somewhere in these three chapters, he says it wasn't just Hinley he came back to revenge on. I think the implication is that he, he's actually back to revenge himself on Kathy. We'll see if we can find that, that, that spot, but... Um... Isn't, isn't it this part, having leveled my palace, don't erect a hovel and complacently admire your own charity and giving me a new home? Um, you're welcome to torture me to death for your amusement. Only allow me to amuse myself a little in the same style. That part? Yes. Like right after. Yeah. The tyrant grinds down, sorry, the tyrant grinds down his slaves and they don't turn against him. They crush those beneath them. Yeah. Why don't we just read that whole paragraph? And um, I'll give you three points for bringing it up because it's a good, it's a good place to focus on. Can you read the paragraph for us? Just the whole thing? Okay. I seek no revenge on you, replied Heathcliff less vehemently. That's not the plan. The tyrant grinds down his slaves and they don't turn him against him. They crush those beneath them. You're welcome to torture me to death for your amusement. Only allow me to amuse myself a little in the same style. Refrain from insult as much as you are able. Having leveled my palace, don't erect a hovel and complacently admire your own charity in giving me that home. If I imagined you really wished me to marry Isabel, I'd crut my throat. So if you were to paraphrase that little snippet, what's Heathcliff telling her? What's hovel? Um, Shitty house. Made out of, like, dirt. It's a shitty house. One point for that definition. Shitty house. It's just, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. That's... So, yeah. 
What's he trying to say? What message does he want to get across to Catherine in that moment? Well, she's Kath, Catherine, for some reason, doesn't seem to blame herself for anything that happens. She's kind of blissfully unaware. And I think he's trying to bring that to her attention, that she's not blameless. Okay. Anything else happening? He calls her a tyrant. I mean, the tyrant is her, mm -hmm. right? The tyrant that ground, grinds down his slaves. So he's like, you can torture me, but you have to let me torture the people who are beneath me. And Isabella is beneath me. So don't, don't deny me that. I totally didn't get that. Huh? Alternate reading from Emmy. How, how did you interpret it when you first read it, Emmy? I imagined he was talking about Hinley, but I don't know why. I totally didn't. I don't. He's talking to Catherine. That makes total, total sense. Yeah, but he's saying he's using the, the, the male pronouns. That's that's why it's confusing. Well, and he's also saying, I seek no revenge on you. So I thought he was referring to like a different character. Like, you know, we've both been tortured in this um, scenario. I don't know why I didn't think it was her. Mm, that's a good point. He though he does say that, like he directly says, I, I'm not here to get revenge on you. Unless it's a thing where it's like, I like you the best. That's why I'll kill you last. <laughs> kind of well, then, but then in the next sentence, it says, you're welcome to torture me. So I don't know. He's respecting the order of things. She's above him on the torture chain. You can't, you can't torture up. You have to torture down. Shit runs downhill. I think if anything, this shows us the degree to which even while despising Catherine for the way she tossed him aside. He's still devoted in some way to her. That he still recognizes he still recognizes her as above him in some way. That he's got this sick he's got this sick idolatry of Catherine. And it's almost as though the only way he can seek revenge against Catherine is not through doing anything to her, but by filling her, or trying to fill her, with guilt. With guilt, and this is sort of how the dynamic gets even more fucked up, with guilt over not doing anything to prevent Heathcliff from doing bad things to everyone else. I think that's kind of Heathcliff's manipulative emotional tactic here. The only way he can conceive of to punish Catherine is by making everyone else's life miserable, or as miserable as his life has been made, and then trying to imply that Catherine is the one to blame. So he does not intend to lift a finger against her directly, but he will wreck the family. He will destroy the relationship between her and her husband, and just kind of let her stew in all of that. Andrew. Frankenstein's monster does exactly that. He like just, he, he won't touch the, he won't touch his creator. He'll murder, he, but he murders everybody his creator loves. It's, it's really similar in that way. So dark. <laughs> Emily Bronte was, okay, in my opinion, this is not academic. Don't quote me on this. I do not want this to be in an article as ascribed to me. Emily Bronte was just the kinkiest Bronte, in my opinion. 
Like, she was into some dark shit. And I think that the entire... Just... The entire cast of Wuthering Heights is evidence of both her misanthropy and her just fascination and kind of a bit of sexual allure to incredibly toxic relationships. I mean, I don't like to psychoanalyze authors based on their works. That's not scholarly, but dirty little secret. Scholars don't always have scholarly opinions amongst ourselves. We sometimes like to cut loose and just say what's on our minds. And I think that the fact that everyone, especially in this set of chapters, that everyone is utterly unlikable speaks a lot to Emily Bronte's general misanthropies, to, to misanthropy to almost everyone except her family. Just jumping back to it being Kathy's fault kind of is like Heathcliff actually says that right at the in the in the in chapter 10. Because he says his original plan was to basically go murder Hinley and then kill himself. That was his original plan. But then like, Kathy welcomed him in. Right? If she hadn't welcomed in, he would have just done a murder-suicide. And this would be done. He said that he, that thought occurred to him while he was waiting at the door. It wasn't like he came to that part of Yorkshire with that plan in mind, though, right? Yeah, I, yeah you're right. I mean, I think he was putting together... He was putting together that plan, and then he was, because I think he wasn't expecting to get welcomed in, it sounds like. I still think he only seeks real revenge for Finley. He's not necessarily trying to make everyone's life miserable, but maybe trying to make Catherine regret her decision, and presumably what he thought she said. He, he definitely wants revenge on Edgar, too, I think, mm. though. That's pretty clear. I mean, the Lintons in general. Yeah. Because they were a bunch of racist pricks. I mean, everyone was kind of a racist prick. Like, I mean, if, if, you, if you come down to it, everyone in this story has come with some degree of prejudice against Heathcliff. And as we talked about last week, it's really hard to disentangle that from his race, from his ethnicity. Because, I mean, that's the thing that people are going to notice first. They always talk about how dark, how black Heathcliff is. And, I mean, they're not just talking about his mood. that They're literally talking about the color of his skin. So I think it's, it's perhaps the fact that the whiteness of the Lintons is so harped upon. I mean, what is it that Heathcliff calls Edgar? Um, milk-blooded coward there, there, there's that's more than a coincidence like there, there's there's a reason he used milk-blooded i mean it's a it's a it's a great insult it goes along with things like milk toast to represent a sort of weak or effete character but it's just there's the lintons are all so fucking white and heathcliff kind of wants to put them in their place a little bit. More than a little bit, I would say. Was, I think it was you who pointed this one out, Jury. That really, Hindley's the one that he most wants to get revenge on. Like everyone else, he's content to make their lives miserable. But Hindley is the one that he just really, really wants... Ooh, he wants to get Hindley where it hurts. 
and well, we're gonna see the we're gonna see the aftermath of his plans. No spoilers, so we'll leave that aside for now. Chapter twelve: Kathy's Madness. I mean, I did, I, opening the chapter, I was like, she's faking it. By the end of the chapter, I'm like, I don't know what this is anymore. It is kind of like an old-timey novel thing to have characters go mad, right? So maybe it's real. Well. When she's sorting the feathers, like she breaks her pillow and she sorts the feathers by the type of bird, and she's talking about it, that really, that's like a, that's like a, a rerun of Ophelia's speech in Hamlet, where she's giving out the flowers to everybody and describing like the properties of the flowers, because she does the same thing with the, the birds, like, oh, and this bird represents this, and this bird is this, and oh, I really hope the red one's in here, and da 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 it's like, I just was like, burp, 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 Ophelia, like, like pressing the, someone's, someone's pressing the madness button. Three points for that. Um, I don't know, I, I, I would have to poke more, again, it's hard to poke into any of Emily Bronte's motives here, but just because there's so, there's so little that we can dig up about her, her life that's not in her, in her work. But yeah, I think that even if it's not sort of a direct imitation, there's some there's some Ophelia-esque qualities to Catherine's madness here. Um, and the, the sort of obsession over separating the feathers. I think the difference here is that she's not so much imbuing them with symbolic quality as, well, why don't we go to that passage? Can somebody please read the paragraph that begins with, that's a turkey's, she murmured to herself. That's a turkey's, she murmured to herself. And this is a wild duck's, and this is a pigeon's. Ah, they put pigeon's feathers in the pil pillows, no wonder I couldn't die. Let me take care to throw it in the floor on the floor when I lie down. And here's a moorcock's, and this I should know it among a thousand, it's a lampwings, bonny bird, wheeling over our heads in the middle of the moor. It wanted to get it to its nest, for the clouds had touched the swells, and it felt rain coming. This feather was picked up from the health. The bird was not shot. We shot its nest in the winter, full of little skeletons. Heathcliff set a trap over it, and the old ones dared not come. I made him promise he would never shot, shoot a lampwing after that, and he didn't. Yes, here are more. Did he shoot my lampwings, Nelly? Are they red? Any of them? Let me look. So let's dive into the significance of the lapwing here. So she weaves in a sort of anecdote about the past. Is there any significant reason why she might have brought that particular anecdote to the forefront? Well, she remembers a promise that Heathcliff made her, and then she's starting to wonder if he actually kept that promise or not. It's as though she's starting to show that she's starting to feel betrayed by Heathcliff, or the possibility that maybe he doesn't love her back the way that she loves him. I'd say that's pretty fair. Does she really have any evidence to go by? Or is... Basically, is there method to her madness? Well, she's very good at um, identifying feathers, so she finds the... The bird's feathers, I guess that's that's a evidence. But the thing is, could she have seen Heathcliff leaving with Isabella from the window? Because we know at this we, we find out in a minute that Isabella's already left. So is she trying to is she is she or she thinks she saw something? 
is she making a reference to that? Because basically immediately after this, after Edgar comes into the argument thing and Nellie, Nellie goes and finds that Isabella's gone. I mean, she already knows that they were embracing each other and that he's been pursuing her. Right. But, she... Sorry, but, uh, but uh, he, he also said he didn't want to marry her and he wasn't going to marry her. And yet he's like essentially eloped with her. I mean, I guess if she knew that they had already eloped, then she wouldn't need to check the pillow to find out if he's a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> I think if we take this little vignette in light of Catherine's personality, her reluctance to admit fault of her own, the fact that she fixates on whether or not Heathcliff broke the promise and sees this feather potentially, oh, is this evidence? Is this evidence that Heathcliff broke his promise and that's why this pillow is stuffed with feathers? It doesn't make any fucking sense. But Catherine is not operating on, on everyday logic here. And I think what we should take away from it is that Catherine is obsessing here in something as mundane as the feathers in her pillow, over whether she can trust Heathcliff or not. And the reason she's obsessing over this thought is that she is to some degree trying with every fiber of her being not to recognize her own fault in any of this. That she has to, she has to have some evidence that Heathcliff was somehow false to her specifically. That's my read on it. In a sense, it's the first time, is it the first time she's doubted his loyalty to her? Yeah, I agree. If I'm just rephrasing what you said, sorry about that. I'm just... Yeah, I could totally see that. And so it's almost like she's casting about, she's wondering this, and this is like a physical way that it manifests. If she had tarot cards, maybe she'd be using those instead. It is kind of a form of divination. Like, there's, yeah. there's nothing about this process that should make sense. But I think the fact that she has turned to this nonsensical way of making sense of the world indicates how the degree to which she's starting to become untethered. And if I were to take a stab at her motivations here, and maybe this is me projecting, I think that she's trying to find something, anything, to excuse her from any culpability in what's happening. So I think, Andrew, like you said, she's got to find some way to explain why she feels so betrayed by Heathcliff. I don't think she's trying to avoid feeling guilt. I think she is, like, incapable of feeling guilt. I really think she, I'm, I'm going to know. I'm going back to she's a sociopath. Thank you. Thank Not you, Judy. Not exactly sociopath, Bang. but I don't think she realizes. I mean, even the fact that she doesn't understand why Heathcliff really left either, right? She said that sentence of degrading, but he didn't hear the last bit. And obviously that wasn't intended for him to hear or anything. It wasn't directed to him. And for her, her intention was to support him financially or just kind of upgrade him through that so her intentions were obviously good in her own way and i don't think she exactly feels mm, guilt i you don't think that the reason she wants 
she wanted to like support Heathcliff is just she wanted to retain control over him. Like I, I, I don't know. I'm I'm still liking my sociopath theory. Just, like he's her plaything, and she's not going to let go, and she doesn't want it. It diminishes her to like lose to lose him. I don't know if that plan to take care of him was ever a serious plan, or if she was only saying that to make herself feel better about marrying the other guy. To be like, well, you know, I'm I'm not just doing it for selfish reasons. I'm doing it because in a way this could help Heathcliff when she was just doing it for selfish reasons. But I think it goes it goes back to what you guys were saying earlier, which was that, you know, she didn't like she didn't even think it was possible to marry Heathcliff. You know what I mean? So it was like, well, this is the only way for us to be continue this childhood thing like for us to continue being the friends that we are is like for me to be the breadwinner by marrying this rich dude you know that's what's gonna allow us to continue this the good things keep the good things rolling because the torturing didn't happen until later no or maybe that was their whole play thing was that she tortured him out in the moors i think i think you guys are right that the (laughs) kinky uh the torture thing was 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 afterwards and it's Someone breaks up with someone else and they want to they want to make them feel like there's still hope because that way they still maintain a connection and control over them. Right? Uh, even though they've got no intention of taking that relationship where they know the other person wants it to go back to. But this could just be a different love language, Andrew, you know? Like <laughs> Right. Love language. So there's what was it's a it's one of the love languages, service. Um <laughs> Uh, good like nice words um uh, what's what she's the other showing ones? her love Gifts. through an, this is an act of service she's showing her right. love by making their Psychopathy. love possible. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fifth love language sixth love language passive aggression is a love language <laughs> i think that this is this is a good place to sort of jump off to go straight into the pop quiz because i actually have a Specific quiz question uh, pertinent to this discussion. Isabella calls Catherine harsh while pining for Heathcliff in chapter 10. What does Catherine call her in response? This one that came up in the reader response. I know what it is, but I'm not sure if I should answer because it's not fair. Yeah, go ahead, go is ahead, it, answer. Is it a dog's manger? Is that the one you're looking for? Okay, uh, you're close. And in fact, you kind of spoiled the follow-up question. No, is Catherine calls Isabella a naughty fondling. Now, what does fondling mean in this case? It's not what you think. <laughs> fondling is is like a is some, something you're overly someone's overly fond of. Like, like it's it's um uh you're some, something someone something that's coddled, right? Yeah, I think in this sense it could also mean someone who just is fond. Someone who's a little bit kind of of silly and inconsequential. I mean, if you say that a person is fond, you know, outside of saying fond of, but just fond as an adjective on its own, um, at least at this point in history, it did mean someone who was just kind of, as elsewhere she's described, mawkish, sentimental. Mm. But my follow-up question is, what does Isabella call Catherine in turn? And that is... Dog in a manger? Yes, dog in a manger. Um, Daniel, I'll give you three points for that. 
but I'll deduct one point from that because you uh, answered it for the wrong question earlier. So I guess two points. But, but how was I? I can't tell the future. <laughs> well, too friggin' bad. I'm the teacher here. This is Miss Charlotte's class. So yeah, um, if you want to redeem yourself, uh, I'll give you first crack at this one, Daniel. What does it mean to call someone a dog in the manger? Oh man, I, I looked this up earlier. <laughs> Stupid memory. Anyone else want to pick up the slack for Daniel here? Time's up. So, the phrase a dog in a manger uh, refers to an old Greek fable. It's sometimes ascribed to Aesop, um, but it, it occurs just throughout history ascribed to some random Greek dude. Um, to call someone a dog in the manger is to imply that, like a dog who doesn't eat hay or grain or oats, who just lies in the manger because it's comfortable and can't be arsed to move, describes someone who is taking jealous possession of something that they cannot enjoy themselves. Oh, like a spoil sport. Yeah. So Isabella calling Catherine a dog in the manger as regards Heathcliff, I don't know, I think it's kind of on the money. Let's do some more pop quiz stuff. How long is Lockwood sick for? Mm, jury, you got a hand up? Four weeks, correct. Three points to jury. And while he is convalescing, Heathcliff brings Lockwood what gift? Andrew? A brace of grouse, I think it was. Correct. I'm going to give you only one point for that because you specifically prepared that in the vocab corner. Daniel. Yeah, I was going to say the gift of companionship <laughs> because he sits at his bedside and entertains him. That's true. Creative answer? I'll give you four points for that one. It actually seems like something that Lockwood does appreciate more than, than the grouse, to be, to be honest. I alluded to this one before, that Nellie Dean characterizes Catherine's position at Thrushcross Grange using a very particular botanical metaphor. It was not the blank bending to the blank, but the blank embracing the blank. Please fill in the blanks. Some sort of vine. Wisteria. Honeysuckle embracing the thorn. Sorry, say that again, Andrew? Honeysuckle and thorn were the... That is correct. So, the phrase goes, It was not the thorn bending to the honeysuckles, but the honeysuckles embracing the thorn. Catherine, obviously, is the thorn in this metaphor. Um... <laughs> Emmy, you said wisteria? Don't know where you got that? I'm taking a point off for it? Because that, I don't even think that word appears in the story, does it? I was thinking of a vine, and that was the first thing that came to mind. Okay. When Heathcliff learns that Isabella has a crush on him, um, we get this little passage. Heathcliff stares at Isabella, quote, as one might do at a strange, repulsive animal. And what animal... Do they use as an example? Ooh, a centipede. Mm. Oh, a yeah. centipede from the Indies. Good. So, Emmy, four points. One point to Andrew for tossing in the the, the origin. <laughs> I don't know if centipedes from the Indies are grosser than centipedes from anywhere else. Why? Or if that was just a, another weird little racist 
dig. Just but, some extra racism. I mean... But if it was a common centipede, it wouldn't work as well for the analogy because... Heathcliff is staring at it because he's intrigued while being disgusted at the same mm. time. And if it was a common centipede, you wouldn't, you'd be less intrigued. Gonna give you two points for that additional bit of information. I think, yeah, there's some fascination to the repulsiveness of Isabella. What does little Harriton call his father? Give you a hint. Two-word alliterative phrase. Oh. Jury. Devil Daddy? Devil Daddy. Correct. Let's see. What do we want to give? Uh, two points. One for each word. <laughs> Devil Daddy. Devil Daddy. It really seems like an ill-considered, like, off-brand comic from the 1970s. <laughs> Devil Daddy. It it sounds like a the name of a swing band. It's like, <laughs> we're the Devil Daddies. Okay. And while everyone's dunking on Edgar, he's compared to two different, very meek animals. This is a two-parter. What's the first one? Andrew? Leverett. Leverett. And Emmy, what's the other one? I was going to say lamb, but that's not right, is it? Is that your final answer, Emmy? No, it is lamb. Correct. I was going to dock points if you took it back, but no, it's lamb. <laughs> um, and let's see. Still Andrew, I'll give you two points. And Emmy, I'll give you three. Andrew, you're only getting two because I asked what was the first one. The first one that appears in the text is lamb. Leverett is actually the second what is it? Okay. animal that he's referred to as. Yep. Okay. Okay, this one is a little bit of a vocab pop quiz that didn't feature in the vocab corner. So Catherine, at the beginning of her little of her little breakdown, um in chapter 11. She has many breakdowns, so it helps to specify which one. Well, if I cannot keep Heathcliff for my friend, if Edgar will be mean and jealous, I'll try to break their hearts by breaking my own. That will be a prompt way of finishing all when I am pushed to extremity. But it's a deed to be reserved for a forlorn hope. What is a forlorn hope? Andrew, want to take a stab at it? So when you're laying siege to a uh, fortress, the forlorn hope is the group that goes in first. Bingo. Like they go through, they, you knock a hole in the wall and then you send the forlorn hope in. Basically, those people are going to die. Most mm -hmm. of them. They used to do in the, at, that, uh, at that time? Yeah, at that time. Well, in the, like the early 1800s of Napoleonic Wars era, basically if you went in, you got an automatic promotion if you survived or something. They'd give some kind of reward because it was like... Yeah, you're going to, like, most of the people who go in the first party die. Yeah, basically, the Forlorn Hope is the vanguard of the vanguard. Like, the first group of soldiers to go into the thick of it would have the Forlorn Hope, who are basically kind of the meat shields. They're the ones that are going to draw the fire and are probably all going to die. But somebody has to be first in the line so that everyone else has a chance of advancing. And whether that's in a siege or even just in a battle, the first group to charge into it, fully expecting to be slaughtered, was called the Forlorn Hope. Okay. Um, we saw this one in Vocab Corner, but uh, let's see how good your memory is. And readers at home, play along. Ne Catherine accuses Nellie of gathering elf bolts 
to hurt our heifers. What is an elf bolt? Said this earlier at the podcast, though, right? Yeah, so you should all friggin' remember. Why are you taking so long? I'm I'm ready, but I'm giving someone else a chance. You don't count, Andrew. Who remembers what elf bolts are? Weren't they the little arrowheads or something? Correct. Emmy, three points. Elf bolts are flint arrowheads or just pieces of flint that accidentally looked like arrowheads. I don't think they were that picky um, in what they called elf bolts, but, you know, some of them actually were, you know, like prehistoric artifacts from prehistoric Britons. Um, But the legend was that they were arrowheads that fall from the heavens that elves would collect to shoot at people and livestock, giving them what they called elf shot, which was just any sort of random inexplicable ache or pain. That there were little invisible elves hiding behind you with a bow and arrow ready to shoot you with it. So Catherine does her mopey hunger strike madness episode. Uh, How long does it last? Emmy? Three days. Is that your final answer? Oh, Lord. (laughs) Oh, Lord. (laughs) Uh, Yes. It's incorrect. It's not three days, but four. Oh. Nellie responds when Catherine asks what when she went into her room. It was Monday evening. I replied, and this is Thursday night. Um, so we've got Tuesday, uh, Wednesday. To be fair Thursday. to Emmy, that is three days. Fuck me. Minus five points for me. That was just me <laughs> being bad at math. Uh, Emmy, uh, five points. And Andrew, minus one point for making me look stupid. <laughs> okay, that's it for the pop quiz. Uh, All right. Want to have a Bronte bite? Yeah, give us a Bronte bite. We're hungry. New Diet Bronte Bites. Now with half the ingredients, half the calories. The same low price. Bronte Bites. Thank you, Daniel. Your Bronte Bite for today is about the Cowan Bridge School. In the novel Jane Eyre, written by Charlotte Bronte, we have this vignette of Jane going away to Lowood School and describes some of the abysmal conditions there. Um, that they're basically sleeping two to a bed, they have to share a cracked basin that on some, on some mornings has frozen overnight, so they have to chip away at the ice to get to the water underneath, that they're fed burnt gruel and just utterly abused and humiliated by the teachers. Well, Lowood School was inspired by Cowanbridge School, um, which, was a cler- which was a school for the daughters of poor clergy. It was a charity school. Um, basically, if you were a poor clergyman in England, I mean, this part of England anyway, um, it was one of the options available where you could sort of work out a pay-what-you-can arrangement. But as a result... It was an incredibly harsh school, both in terms of just discipline and the material conditions. 
There is corroborating evidence, in addition to what Charlotte Bronte wrote in Jane Eyre, of how much Cowanbridge School sucked. And it, it, it sucked even for the 19th century. It was remarkably shitty. And, and I mean, that's saying something for a time when Dickensian boarding school situations were not out of the ordinary. But at Cowanbridge School, there was a major typhoid epidemic. While the Brontes were there, um, I think it was all of them except all of them except Anne uh, were at Cowanbridge School at one point. Anne was the youngest. Um, and the two oldest, uh, Mariah and Elizabeth, survived typhoid, but then came down with tuberculosis. Just, I guess, because they wanted to be different. Oh, that's really mean. Especially since they're like dead kids. Wow, I'm sorry. But came down with tuberculosis. They were brought home, died shortly after coming home. The other girls were withdrawn from the school. And the school itself was shut down. Not immediately, but word did get out of how shitty it was. And students were withdrawn. It, it was infamous. I mean, as infamous as a tiny, insignificant country school could be. Locally infamous, let's say. So, there's your Bronte bite. Thank you. So, uh, next thing we have to do is we have to tally up the points and figure out who is the teacher's pet this week and who is the class dunce. Dunce. Who has to wear the purple dunce cap of shame for the next, uh, for the, till the next episode. Are you volunteering, Emmy? Put your hand down. Totally, clearly me. <laughs> I don't know about that. All right, so who is the teacher's pet? Who is the class dunce? So the teacher's pet, uh, with 14 points, is Emmy. What? Again? You really are the teacher's Coming pet. Coming at 11 points is Andrew. And we're in a double dunce situation here. With 10 points each, Jury and Daniel. Though it was a pretty tight race, this one. Uh, it was... It was. What, what should we do for the tiebreaker? Do they have to perform uh, a, a Wuthering Heights-inspired interpretive dance and we decide which one's better? Sure, Daniel, sure. We'll do an interpretive dance for, these, for this audio podcast. And that's how we'll do the tiebreaker. That's, that's, a, that's a fantastic... You know what, Andrew? You're losing two points. You're the dunce. That's the tiebreaker. <laughs> Your total is nine. Nine points, Andrew. You're right. the dunce. Put the hat on. All right, I'm wearing the dunce cap. So, uh, so, uh, Miss Charlotte, what chapters are we doing next week? Next episode, we're going to be looking at chapters 13 through to chapter 16. It's going to be a four-chapter episode. Coming up next. The only thing left for us to do is not the only thing left for us to do. It's this penultimate thing left for us to do, which is uh, Miss Charlotte needs to randomly decide who will be giving the reports. Okay, Andrew, it's all yours. And all right. Emmy, what do you want to make Andrew do? I think you should do a religious sermon. All right, religious sermon. Got it. Okay. Guys, that brings this, our fourth episode to a close. I'd like to thank our expert, Ms. Charlotte Sampson, for giving us her time, insight, 
and irritability. Thanks, Charlotte. You're very welcome. Also, this episode would not have happened without the contributions of my fellow readers and book nerds, Emmy Doe, Daniel Wishes, and Jordi Ito. Uh, thanks to Rio Namagaya, who works tirelessly behind the scenes to make sure my professional life isn't a disaster. Thank you. I want to say thank you to our listeners. Guys, I... So I just... Guys, I've got my mom and my aunt listening, probably. So the least you could do is start guilting your immediate family members into listening. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, head over to the Oklahoma Theatre Group webpage at ytg.jp and click the support button to make a one-time donation or, I don't know, browse stuff. Or better yet, honestly, at this point, leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast platform of your, your choice. Only leave a five-star review. The way things are set up with those reviews, a four-star review basically tells potential listeners that we talk over each other all the time, eat babies, and worse, blow into our mics to see if they're on. And finally, thanks to Emily Bronte, without whom there would be no Wuthering Heights, no podcast, but please, Ms. Bronte, stop banging at my window every night. You are old enough to be my great-great-great-grandmother. I checked. And I'm going to get a restraining order if it continues. Uh, we'll be back in a of days for episode five. Still haven't figured out the release schedule and as of this recording. So anyway, see you then. Class dismissed. Woo-hoo. Oh, shoot. That was what I wanted to call the episode. I don't remember. I'm just looking at my notes. I'm like I was going to call it upper, upper class twit of the year. This is probably the height of the upper class Twitter of the year stuff. So I imagine those characters are going to start dropping like flies pretty soon. Yeah, who's going to die next? What happens is Heathcliff comes, makes a play yeah. for Isabella, and 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 has an embrace with her, which I, I figure is 18th, 19th century for necking. It, it signified a lot of things, but yeah, embrace. It 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 covered a range of. Yeah, I mean. It could it could cover up to fucking, but I assume they just weren't fucking on the front lawn. That would have been frowned upon uh, considerably. <laughs> this podcast is copyright 2020, the Yokohama Theater Group. Our theme song was written by Akihiro Akane and is used with his permission.